Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. What I love about I, I did I got a, to read a little bit about Dr. Pat's um, bio, and it's really cool. She has been practicing as a sexologist, counselor, all that kind of stuff, all the way till she was 65, and then she was like, I'm retired now. I'm going to start speaking around the nation. And so, yeah, she's like 74, um, travels around. She's in Perth for like three weeks. I saw her schedule. She's speaking about 30 times and oh, something crazy like that. And um, she's just amazing. And so I just know that we are going to be so blessed. And um, it is going to be part of our next series, the start of our new series in a couple of weeks. We're called, uh, it's called Imago Day, which is a Latin term for image of God. So we're going to be talking about what it means to be created in the image of God. And I think it's going to be a fantastic series. It's one that I'm really excited about. Dr. Pat is going to be talking about um, what sex design is um, in God. Yeah. That's words. Um, yeah, so she's going to talk about God's design for sex. That's a better way of saying it. And then the week after, I'm going to be talking about the place of women in the church and the place of women in the world as well, because I think that we need to be talking about God's design. And then the week after, Beck's going to be, Pastor Beck's going to be talking about God's design for love. If we are created in the image of God, then we need to know what love is in God's design. And I think our world kind of switches these things around and muxes around and all that kind of stuff. So those three, four weeks that we have in this series is going to be really great and amazing. Uh, but I know that we're having fun in this series as well, aren't we? And um, our key verse is from Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, which says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A couple of weeks ago when we started this series, I spoke about um, what grace looks like. You use the parable of the prodigal son, son, ハレルヤ。he would not be getting no money from me. He'll be getting a slap. And then we talked about how that son took that grace. He traded, in, traded it in for something of lesser value because he wanted to move away. And using this lesser value grace, he moves into a faraway land where he basically squanders it, loses it all. And in his hunger, he decides I should go back to dad's house because dad's house has got food. Uh, for the servants, and so he treks back. But we know this little detail as well, that his little speech that he gives, where he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, for a Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking, I'm going really fast, I know. The podcast is available from two weeks ago, amazing message if I say so myself. And, um, and um, what happens? Um, yeah, son, 
he, he, he gives this little speech. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. It was to a Jewish audience, and the Jewish audience would have known this phrase from the story in Exodus where the Pharaoh says to Moses, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So basically, we know that this son probably isn't fully repentant. He was just simply hungry. But in his hunger, he comes back to God, not God, sorry, his father, which is a picture of God, and father receives him home, restores his identity, restores his value, restores his worth. And then we also see a picture of the other son who's always been in dad's house, but never got any grace. Why? Because he was trying to work for it. So today what I want to talk about is faith. In Ephesians 2 verse 8 it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And so we've talked a bit about grace, now we're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about what it looks like to have faith, to grow in faith, to, to possess this thing called faith. Because I think in Christian circles, we throw the word grace around and we throw the word faith around and it's lost its meaning. You know, we, we talk about different faiths in, the, in, in our culture, in our society, respecting other people's faiths. Faith and religion is the same thing in our culture, but is that really God's intention when He talks about by grace through faith? And so that's what I want to be unpacking for us this morning. And to start things off, I have got a, um, a little, what do you want to call this, illustration, an object lesson. I was never a kid's pastor, and so I never got to do this. And um, so I'm going to do this now. So basically, I'm going to give you a little uh, illustration of what grace and faith looks like. I, in my hot little hand, have got a bag, as you can see. And in this bag is an amazing gift. Or it could be an absolutely terrible gift. It could be anything at this point in time because you cannot see it. It could be a tiny little baby elephant. It could be a viper. It could be... A dinosaur, it could be a little cat. It could be so many things because you can't see it, right? And what it actually is, is a gift that I'm going to give to Robin because it was Robin's birthday two days ago. And so, <laughs> she hates this already. <laughs> I bribed her yesterday for a picture of Mowgli and said, I'm going to do this to you. And um, so, this is a gift for Robin. And uh, we've already, Beck and I have already celebrated Robin's birthday. We've done all this. This is just something above and beyond. And so I prepared this gift. And um, so what Robin is going to do in a few moments is to reach a hand into this mystery bag. Do you know what's in the bag, Robin? I don't know. Would you know? Maybe you don't know. So maybe you should put your hand in there. But before you do, let me just play the right music as you put your hand in the bag. Hello Panda! Do you like this? See? Awesome, you can grab a seat. All right. I think quite often... I thought I saw it. Yeah, there we go. It's my grace bag. Um, grace is a gift. 
We talked about that. It is unmerited favor from God. It is something that we don't earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we do except to exist. Yeah, and so when we celebrate birthdays, we give a gift not because the person is necessarily that deserving of it. It's just simply because you exist and we love you. And so here, have a gift. That's grace, right? Now, faith is receiving. But sometimes we don't think about the process of receiving because we simply think that receiving is taking. But when Robin had to come to the grace bag and she did not know what was in it, she had a few questions that would have been going through her mind. The first question is, what the heck is in that bag? Is it moving? Is it not? Is it something that is safe? Is it something that is dangerous? Is it something that I will like or is it something that I will hate? She does not know because of the bag. And so because she doesn't know what is in the bag, she doesn't have x-ray eyes, she then goes to think about who is holding the bag. And because she knows me, hopefully she is running through these thoughts in her head. Would Nate do something that would harm me? Well, probably not because he's the pastor, and if there's anthrax in the bag, it will look really bad for him. <laughs> he might not have a job next week. You know, so hopefully it's not harmful. So she has eliminated that because she understands that Nate has a responsibility, and Nate won't necessarily want to kill her in front of everyone else, maybe in a deserted alley or something like, no, I will not kill you, Robin. Um, but then she starts to think, is Nate going to make me touch something really gross, really slimy, like collected snot for three weeks or, or something? All the visual people are like, would I do that or would I actually get something nice? And hopefully... For Robin, at the end of the day, she reached into the bag pretty quickly. I was hoping for a slower response, but I think Robin trusts me, and she knows that Nate isn't going to do something stupid and disgusting. He's actually going to give me something that hopefully I like, and so she reaches into the bag, and she takes a gift of Hello Panda, which is always a safe option when you're giving a gift to an Asian, just letting you know. And... Um, isn't it the same with our faith when it comes to God? I reckon that God's grace doesn't always come in packages that we understand. It is like it is shrouded in a bag, a bag of unknown, a bag of uncertainty, a bag that shrouds our vision from actually understanding what God is trying to give us. I know in my life grace has come in packages that I did not want. Grace has sometimes come in the form of what I perceived as rejection. Grace has come in the form of what I've seen as disappointment and hurt. But quite often as I journey through my life and I look back and I don't see the bag anymore, but I see God's grace and I can say, wow, that felt like rejection, but it really was love. That felt like disappointment, but it really was fulfillment. That God was guiding me and leading me down a path that I needed. But because I didn't understand a bag, I needed to look to God. And I needed to see who was actually giving the gift. And that is what grace and faith, the whole thing is about. When we want to receive, we actually need to look past just the gift itself. And we need to understand who is the giver. And that's what faith is about. And as I was uh, doing a bit of research this week, I wanted to really uncover a, a, a definition of faith that would stick in your mind, that will help you understand faith, and that would spur you on to want to grow in your faith. 
And as I was doing this research, I came across this interesting fact that across the four Gospels, the four Gospels are four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I found that in the book of Matthew, it refers to the word faith more times than any of the other four Gospels. And um, one interesting little fact that I found was that in the book of Matthew, on four separate occasions, Jesus says this phrase to someone or to a group of people. He says, you of little faith. And, and I'm writing a blog about it. I've actually written it already. It is going to be uploaded end of today. You can read it on our website about what those four separate occasions are, or what I think that God's trying to teach us through those four occasions. I don't have time today, um, this morning, to talk about it. Uh, but Jesus uses this phrase, you of little faith, four times in the book of Matthew. Only one other time in the book of Luke, I think it's Luke 12, is that same phrase used. So at no other time in the four Gospels, except that one occasion, did Jesus say to anyone, was recorded to say to anyone, you have little faith, but in the book of Matthew, it was recorded four times. And when I looked at the book of Matthew, there's something interesting about it. The book of Matthew was written to a predominantly Jewish audience. Every gospel was written to a different audience. Uh, the book of Luke, for example, was written uh, as, as a bit of a evidence to, to the Gentile world. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And he compiled all of this evidence, eyewitness accounts. He meticulously went through it so that people would understand understand um, that, that Jesus's life is something that could be trusted. But Matthew was written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And that's why when you read the book of Matthew, you will see Matthew quoting scriptures from the Old Testament, from, from the prophets quite often, because he was trying to show to these Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of what God had always promised. And so when we understand that Matthew was writing to people who should have picked up at some point or realized that Jesus was this amazing fulfillment of all of God's promises, that God's promises was being found in this one man. This is the audience that Matthew was writing to. And on four occasions, he records Jesus saying, you of little faith. Keep that in mind. That will be an interesting thought for you later. And so as I was looking at it, I looked through the four accounts. I was trying to find out what, it, what this teaches me about faith. And really what came to mind was uh, when I started to research into the words that is translated little faith. Uh, the four accounts are, are fascinating accounts. But what really gripped me was what the word little faith was actually meant to, to mean in that day. And so I did, I did, I did a hard work for you guys. And um, the word little faith, uh, the word that was translated for us, little faith, is this word, oligopistis. That's, it's going to come up on the screen, oligopistis. It sounds like an Italian food. Would you like some oligopistis with your pasta? Yes. I think of olive oil, pistachio nuts. Yeah? Beautiful pizza. Oligopistis. That was a terrible accent. I made Sandy laugh. My job is done. Oligopistis. And it means little faith. And I broke 
and I studied behind these words. It consists of the words oligos and the word pistis. Now, oligos means small, but the thing about oligos is that it doesn't just refer to a numerical number. It can. If there's a small number of items, you can use the word oligos. There's an oligos number of items. But the word oligos can also be used in terms of intensity. In terms of intensity. So let's say the light in this room is not very intense. I can say the light is oligos. Does that make sense? It's a little bit darker here. The light is not straight in my face. And so oligos can be used to describe a low intensity. And the word pistis is translated faith, and um, we translate it as faith, but in the original Greek, the word pistis actually refers to persuasion, a persuasion. And so when you put oligos pistis together, Jesus was saying to these people that you have a low intensity of persuasion. Is that starting to click? Because that started to click in me. Why? Because I always thought that to be strong in my faith, to have a big faith, it was like gathering blocks of faith. And I wanted to do this, but I thought it would be way too messy. But for me, in my mind, faith is like those Jenga block things. And so I have got more faith now. i got another block. And then I build up my block And I don't know about you, but in my life, quite often when I'm trying to have this bigger faith, but I'm not feeling like I've got any more blocks, I steal blocks from the bottom to put it on the top. And I'm trying to make my block of faith look bigger, but I really know that it's on a shaky foundation. And so when I step out in faith, as we say in Christian circles, I've got one of those towers where there's only one block on the bottom, in the middle. And the whole thing is shaky, but it's big. i got this big faith, and I'm taking this big risk on... But you know what? When Jesus was talking about faith, he wasn't talking about a number of building blocks of faith. He was talking about a persuasion, a strong, intense persuasion. And from there, as I continue to do my study, I'm going quite fast because I know that there's something that I really want to get to today. But there's one of these verses in the Bible that is quite directive about faith. And that's found in Hebrews 11 verse 1, the chapter of faith. Many people know it. It says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And when I looked at that, I go, that tells me nothing. Anyone ever sometimes look at the Bible, look at these verses that is supposed to explain stuff, and you're like, that explains nothing. Now faith is confidence and assurance. What does that even mean? What does that even look like? And so I started to plug in some words. So I plugged in for faith, intensely persuaded that God loves me, right? Don't go, go back to the other one first, team. Thank you. Awesome. And what I did then was I searched up what confidence actually meant. The word confidence means that there is this firm foundation that you can stand on, right? So faith, confidence, and then I searched up what assurance is, and assurance means a legal evidence and proof. So this is something that is admissible in the court of law, so to speak. And finally, I searched up this little phrase, what we do not see. In another translation, it says, an assurance about things we do not see. So what 
here can also be translated things, if you will. But the thing about things in this particular verse is that it isn't referring to something that is supposed to happen in the future, but it refers very specifically to things that have already been done. Right? So we have faith, confidence, assurance, and things that I found out uh, translations for, if you will, or, or a broader meaning. And so I created a new version of this verse. It's called the Nate Expanded Version. The N-E-V. I think there's already N-E-V. Dang it. <laughs> Nate 4 Extended Version. N-P-E-V. And this is what it says. Thanks, guys. Now, an intense persuasion that God loves me is the firm foundation that allows me to hope. And that intense persuasion is also the legal proof, the evidence that God has already done what He has promised, even if I do not see it. So it all comes back to this intense persuasion. When I am intensely persuaded about something, it is the basis from which I act. For example, let me give you an evidence or an example of an intense persuasion that my lovely wife has. My wife has this lovely intense persuasion that cow's milk is going to destroy my life. She believes that it is a root of all evil. And so, there was a little season just a couple of months ago where every day I woke up with a runny nose sneezing my face off and she was like, it's the milk. And by then, Beck had gotten into this horrible, terrible habit of milking almonds for her milk. And she buys these poor tortured almonds milk. Think about the almond babies. They were never intended to give you milk. And... Um, and so Beck has this intense persuasion, right, that almond milk is going to solve all of my problems. And she pestered me for a couple of days, and I finally said yes to giving um, non-dairy products a try for a month. And um, nothing changed. My intense persuasion that cow's milk is the best milk has not changed. It hasn't. Because I tried, I still sneeze my face off on certain days. I think it's called hay fever. <laughs> Almond milk, cow's milk, hay fever, all. I have an intense persuasion. Let me give you another intense persuasion I have. You see, when I, I hate roller coasters. I think that they're torture devices that someone created for hell. Can you imagine falling for perpetuality? <sighs> Hell, right? Roller coasters, same thing. And some people will come to me and they're like, you know that engineers have tested this, right? That they've built this to specifications and they have checked the equipment and no one is going to die. As I, and they're trying to persuade me that I should go on this roller coaster. And I've got this intense persuasion that I don't like it. And nothing's going to change that very easily. Oh, I love it when I feel fear. Really? I don't. Fear is from the enemy. Perfect love chases out fear. So I don't need this roller coaster. And so people try to change my persuasion of what things should be. And I've got my own intense persuasion. 
And when we look at intense persuasion in that kind of a way, intense persuasion of God's love for us is the basis of which we hope and is the basis on which we believe that God's promises are yes and amen. So for us to be able to access the grace, right? Because remember, we want hope and we want to believe that God has got great things for us. We want to receive that grace. We, to be able to receive that grace, we first need to have an intense persuasion that God is good. That is what faith is all about. Faith isn't so much about my strength and my courage. It really is about how I see God. If I see God as good, then I will approach God because He is good. If I am scared of God, then I won't go to God because I do not believe that what He has in the bag of grace is one thing that I can trust. And so what we really need to understand is that to grow in our faith is to grow in our persuasion of God's character, His love, and His goodness. A couple of weeks ago, I made this statement that the enemy of faith isn't so much doubt, but it is independence, right? I made this statement a couple of weeks ago. And when I'm talking about this whole persuasion thing, maybe you are thinking, how does this all fit together? Well, this is how it fits together in my mind. When we read in biblical accounts of people having doubt, they still can receive but when there are biblical accounts of people who desire independence above coming close to God, that is when they don't receive. A case in point is a man that is called Doubting Thomas in our world today. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them was called Thomas. And Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus had already resurrected and appeared to his disciples on a couple of occasions. He wasn't in a room, and finally he joins them. I don't know what happened. I don't know why he wasn't with them, but he was the only one out of that troop of guys that hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus. And they were in a room, and everyone else was like, Jesus is alive, this is amazing. And Thomas makes this statement, that I'm not going to believe unless I put my fingers in the holes in his wrists and the hole in his side. That's where he gets the name Doubting Thomas from. Everyone else is like, Jesus is alive, this is amazing. He's like, I don't think so, guys. And that's what used to get me. When I was growing up in church and I heard this story, I'm like, this guy doubted. He didn't have faith or so I thought and because he doubted and didn't have faith Jesus shouldn't have shown up right he shouldn't have received what he was looking for because he had doubt but what what speaks to me about this account is that this guy who doesn't believe yet that Jesus is alive that has this severe doubt inside he has this existential crisis basically because he had given of at least Two to three years of his life, giving up everything to follow Jesus, thinking that Jesus was going to lead a revolution that was going to change the whole of Israel. He gave his life for that Jesus. 
And that Jesus was now dead. And he now didn't know what he was supposed to be. He didn't know what his life was supposed to look like. And so in this moment, he was having a severe existential crisis. What am I doing with my life? So what was he doing? He gathered with the rest of the disciples. You know, when I doubt that those guys know what they're doing, I don't hang out with them. You know what I mean? I don't hang out with the legalized marijuana group of people because I don't believe in what they believe in. I haven't been persuaded according to their persuasion. So I'm not going to hang out with that group. But what happens here is Thomas still meets up with the other disciples. He still chooses to be in community with them even though he has doubts. And in that moment, he wasn't independent. I believe that the cry of his heart was a genuine, I just, I just need to work this out. I just want to know what is going on. And, and maybe you guys are in the same place as me. Maybe you're doubting and he finds a group of guys who are convinced that Jesus is alive and he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I, I just want something a little bit more. And Jesus rocks up. And remember, this room was locked. If you read the story, doors were locked, windows were locked, and Jesus just appears in a room. I love this. And Jesus doesn't turn to any of the believing disciples. He zeroes in on the one who is doubting. And he says to this doubting Thomas, he says, put your hands here, put your hands here, put your hands here. Oh, now I believe. Oh, blessed is he who believes when he doesn't see. Da, 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 da. So yes, maybe Thomas could have had more faith. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't seek independence. He didn't seek to trust himself. He didn't seek to walk away. He had doubts, but it doesn't mean that he had no faith. It just simply meant that his persuasion of who Jesus is was a little bit shaky, but he wasn't alone. When we go back to the parable of the two sons, when did the younger son stop having access to faith? When he left the house. Sorry, access to grace. When he left the house. When he went to a far away land. What was this saying to me was that this younger son was trying to find his identity outside of his father's house. He was trying to strike out by himself and to be able to develop an identity and a life outside of his father's house. He was persuaded that he would be able to do life better without dad. And so he did all that he did in order to achieve his independence. And when the grace ran out, suddenly there was still this inkling, this tiny little persuasion that God's house has got something for me. Maybe there's still something more for me in dad's house. Did he truly believe that dad was for him? Did he truly believe that dad would accept him? I don't know. But there was something in him that said, perhaps dad will take me back home. That was enough of a persuasion for him to go back home. My question for you this morning is, what is your persuasion towards God? And what are other things that are trying to persuade you away from God? What are the things that are stopping you from seeing the goodness and the love of God that is stopping you from accessing the grace that God has already made available to you? 
Becky and I have been on an adoption journey. Many of you have heard this. Uh, and we've gone for uh, a few lessons and we've done a lot of research by ourselves. And one of the sad things about what we've learning is that adoptive children, they go through trauma from young. They go through the trauma of separation uh, from key attachment figures in the early days and is encoded into their mind as trauma. And so they start to see the world through that trauma, which affects something called attachment. And so as I was starting to understand the importance of attachment, I, I went and I did a whole bunch of reading about it. And in particular, there was one book that really opened my eyes to attachment. And I wanted to just bring you this as a potential persuasion that many of us have to work through. You see, the whole idea of attachment theory is that the early attachment that we have to our primary caregivers affects the way that we relate to people later on in our life. And these Christian psychologists wrote about how the early experiences with people that we have in our life affects the way that we see God as well and how we relate to God. And this, as I work through this with people and with myself, I see that this is absolutely true. That the, 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 the persuasion that I have gotten from my early experiences absolutely colors the way that I see people and I see God. In particular, these psychologists came up with four main questions about uh, what we're trying to find out through our early attachments in our early days. I might have gotten it on the screen, actually. The first two have to do with our personal domain, and then the other two has to do with people outside of us. And the first two basically boil down, it says, am I a person worthy of love, and am I able to do what I need to get that love? Those two questions. Am I fundamentally worthy of love? And can I do the things that I need to do in order to get that love? I grew up in a culture that said that a person's value and worth is dictated to based on his or her performance. And so I felt the need to perform always as a child growing up in Singapore in that culture where you always get given more if you achieve more. And if you don't achieve anything, you are the, you, you're, you're gone. You, you're overlooked. You, you don't exist in the Singapore system, or at least that was my perception of it. And, and, and so I grew up in that culture where I thought that I needed to perform in order to get love. I, I was really scared of not performing because if I don't perform, I don't get love. And that is a fundamental need that we have been built with to be loved. And so I questioned myself and I thought that I had dealt with it until a few years ago when I came to realize that I thought that God still needed me to perform. There was something in me that God was holding out a bag of grace and I was like, no, 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 I haven't done anything to get that yet. So wait until I achieve that thing, God, and then you can give it to me. And so I made all of these conditions for when I would accept God's grace and when I would not. Did God ever withhold that grace from me? No, no, no. He was always holding it out. But because the need to perform is an independent action, is an action that didn't depend on God, but dependent on myself, I was the one who persuaded myself to distance myself from God until I felt worthy. That is the first question when it comes to that. How many of us are being persuaded that we need to perform in order to get God's love? How many of us are persuaded through our early years that, that unless I do something that proves my value, 
then I'm able to come into God's presence. Because what does the Bible say? It is by grace through faith, not of your own effort, not of your own works. This is something that God chooses to give to you. And my heart needs to be in a place where, you know what, because God has already put His hand out, it must mean that I'm worthy. It must mean that I have already done what I need to do in order to get this, which right now is I exist. I'm here. And so God wants to give. Isn't that great? Isn't that a load off your shoulders? That you don't have to perform in order to get God's... Stop being independent in that kind of a way. Yeah, drive your own car, wash your own clothes, clean your own law, do all that kind of... But you don't need to be independent in your pursuit of righteousness. You don't need to be independent in your pursuit of acceptance and love. No, no, God gives that first. And He has already put that out there. And then there was this second fundamental question that we are trying to figure out when we are young. Is that are people reliable and trustworthy and are accessible to me when I need them? Is a question of consistency and availability. And for me, again, growing up in a Singaporean environment, a Chinese environment, where expressiveness and emotional connection isn't highly valued, I struggled to know whether God connected with me at an emotional level. See, my, my, my family always provided many things for me. They provided me with shelter, with home, uh, and, and a very loving environment for sure. But in Singapore, to express your emotions, it seemed to be out of control for some reason. And so I grew up, and it's only over the last year that I started to realize that God is not just reliable and trustworthy in a provisional kind of a way, but it's also in an emotional kind of a way. My relationship with God had always been transactional. It was, I did this for you, God. Okay, now you get this. And now I did this now, God. Why don't you pay me with grace? And that was a kind of, I was like, let's shake hands and walk away from here and I'll live. I was always independent of God because I didn't know whether He would love me, whether He connected with me whether he saw me, whether he desired me. I did not understand that God had emotions and affections towards me. And when I started to discover those things, it was like, oh my God, you love me. And through that recognition that God loves me, it starts to reframe things so I can see the bag of grace for what it is. It is grace. It is a gift of God. I start to accept whatever God is putting out there. More and more I can trust. I can run into His arms because He's dependable, because He's reliable. His love for me has already been proven. Do you know what is to be intensely persuaded that God is good. It, it reaches all levels within us. It reaches our minds, it reaches our hearts, it reaches our bodies. In all of these areas, we need to know what we are persuaded by. And as I went through this journey of answering these questions, I could see that there were persuasions inside of me that people will only love me if I perform for them. People will only love me if I did something in order that they could see my true worth and value. And so people would not want to connect with me why would they want to connect with me if I haven't done anything yet? And I was living in this bound up, sad place, but I was independent. I was in control. 
Do you know the worst thing about faith? Is that you're out of control. <laughs> is that it's solely based on God's character. You know what? That, that freaks me out. It does. Can God be trusted? Well, that's the whole point of trust. You don't know. If we already knew that God could be trusted in every single facet, it wouldn't be faith. But because I've seen what he did on the cross, because I understand the impact of the cross, because he rose again from the dead, because of the victory that he's already given to me, because of all that he's done, I'm wanting to hold on to that persuasion rather than my independence. Growing in faith is not just weirdly getting these spiritual blocks and putting it in a tower. It's about knowing that God is good. There are people in this room today that struggle to see that God loves you because you've got persuasions that have made you question that. When I read the stats and I do the research, I can understand why. More than likely, there are people in this room who have been abused emotionally, sexually, psychologically, maybe physically, by people that you trusted and you loved. I opened this conversation up not because I want to call you out, but because that's a persuasion that will stop you from being able to find peace, from being able to find love. That some of you that felt abandoned at some point in your life by people who should have been there for you. And so when you think about trusting God, you go, why should I? To give him an opportunity to abandon me? And honestly, there are people in this room that might have that persuasion. You cannot access grace in a place of independence. It is like walking out on water. It looks scary. It looks like it's not going to hold your weight. But that's where you fix your eyes on Jesus. And you say, yeah, there you go. Why does it say that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith? Because faith is about who he is, what he has done, what he has proven over the course of time. And so when I'm on this side, I might not understand everything, but I understand enough. That when he calls me out upon the water, I would rather put my trust in that than this boat that I'm already in. This boat that might not withstand the waves. This boat that might not be able to withstand the storm. This boat that I have been in all my time and all my life in my independence and I built for myself. I don't know if this boat is gonna be able to withstand everything that life is gonna throw at me, but I see a Savior and He's walking on the water. He is not moved by the wind and the waves. He is not moved by any circumstance that is going on. And He says, come. And so I want to run. I want to live a life that is persuaded that it is better to be walking on the water with Jesus than to be in this boat being tossed around by the wind and the waves. 
Because who knows how long it is before my effort is not going to be good enough? How long is it going to be before I know that in and of myself, I do not have enough to keep treading water and surviving in my life when there is a Saviour that is walking above it and He's saying, come on, come on and come into this life. And so, yes, this boat is comfortable. When I talk to people about their independence and the actions that they are taking that is bringing them into themselves, it always makes sense. People hurt you. People have done things to break your heart, to show you or to speak things that should never have been spoken but have been spoken. And so that boat makes sense. I'm not criticizing your boat. I'm just pointing out that your boat's small. That is being tossed around. And there's a Savior that's walking on the water. And He's saying, come. We can get the band up this morning. What are your persuasions this morning? When you look at your life and you see, ask yourself, are you willing to run to God? Or is your life a pattern of holding Him at arm's length or maybe even running away from Him? When you look at your life and you see those persuasions, are they, one, are they ones that you truly want to choose or are they ones that have been chosen for you? Because of that incident, that experience, that thing that happened, Perhaps you feel like that cause of action has already been chosen for you. That persuasion has been chosen for you. You're asking yourself, can I have any other persuasion other than what I've already held on to? And my answer for you is yes. Yes. But it takes you leaving that boat that used to be a source of security and comfort and stepping out into a place of unknown and receiving a love and grace that doesn't make sense, that we don't always understand and we don't always know. We don't always know what is in the bag. We, we, we're trying to make sense of it from 100 meters away and we're saying, what's in there, God? You tell me before I come. God said, it's my love. I've always loved you. I've always proven it to you. So will you come? So will you come? Every eye closed, every head bowed. God's calling you to come this morning. Come closer to Him, stepping out of the boat. He wants to give you a new persuasion. He wants to start to persuade you that He is good. I don't know what He's gonna do in this moment in this place right now, but there's some of you that might want to take a step and to say, Jesus, I want you in my life. See, the Bible teaches us that sin is what separates us from God. Sin is the stuff that we've done that, that is done in independence, really. But God is saying that when you confess your sins, when you confess that I'm Lord and Savior, that what I've done is what you need, that day salvation is yours. So I'm going to lead us all in a prayer. And if that is you, if you really want to invite Jesus into your life, can you please say these words with me? Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. I know that I have sinned. I know that I have fallen short. But I know 
that you died on the cross for my sin and you rose from the dead in order to have victory that you give to me. I receive you. Be my Lord and my Saviour. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.